Hello and welcome to Orchestrating the Supply Chain, the August edition of Transport Topics Live on Web. I'm Dan Ronan, the Associate News Editor for Print and Multimedia here at Transport Topics. Our topic for the next hour is an interesting one, and we've got some outstanding guests too who will be with us as well as we look at the changes taking place when it comes to the Transport Topics Top 100 Private Carriers and what many of them are doing during this rapidly growing economy to diversify their particular business models. The U.S. economy, as you know, is red hot. Shipping <coughs> volumes and rates are way up, and many companies say they have not been this busy in years. So, is this a great time to be a private carrier? We'll answer the question in today's show. <coughs> many private carriers believe this is the time to diversify their operations and move into other trucking industry areas where they may have already limited interest, but developing new opportunities to grow their business lines. First, I'm pleased to be joined by Veteran Transport Topics Senior Features Writer Dan Burke. He is the key figure behind our annual top list and the lead reporter for the recently published ranking of the top 100 private carriers in North America. During today's Live on Web newscast, you can always join the conversation as well by emailing us your questions at share at ttnews.com. Again, that's share at ttnews.com. Today's edition of Live on Web is sponsored by Verizon Connect. What is the biggest change you've seen over the last 16 years, if you will, with regards to the private carrier side of the industry? Sure, Dan, thank you very much. Um, I think it's always fun to kind of look back at the beginning. So this 20, was, 20 zero. This was the first uh, year we published the private 100, 2002. <clears throat> and the biggest carrier on the list at that time, uh, this will come as no surprise to anyone, is Walmart. Right, but uh, at the time, Walmart owned uh, a company called McLean, which uh, was later spun off to Berkshire Hathaway, and uh, now both companies uh, are, appear on the top 100. Uh, Walmart ranking number three this year, and uh, McLean uh, is number eight. So, two very large companies um, uh, still playing a major role in the private fleet market. Um, Dan, I would say, you know, the biggest change over the years um, isn't so much in the composition of the list, but the size of these fleets, and also the increase in the capabilities and the sophistication, I would say, of these operations over time. So uh, one way to look at the, the increase in size over time is uh, um, looking at the, the top 100 list of uh, the threshold for being on the top 100. Uh, back in 2002, uh, the lowest ranked fleet had uh, just under 200 tractors. The lowest ranking fleet this year has more than 430 tractors. So uh, there's been an increase in the, in the size of these fleets over time. Uh, and much of that is due to uh, consolidation and acquisitions uh, that companies have made over time. And uh, uh, might be uh, interesting to, to some people to, uh, to, to just to highlight a few of the companies Please that are, are making the biggest moves uh, mm -hmm. over time on the list. And uh, one of which is Quickcrete. This is a company that uh, um, uh, distributes uh, concrete products. Um, uh, and uh, uh, they've, uh, moved up uh, the list from this, uh, I think in the, just in the past year, they've gone from like 59 to in the 30s. So- um, 20 this, plus jumps. Yeah, 20 plus jump. uh, primarily through acquisitions. Um, 
Southern Glacier Wine and Spirits is another interesting example of uh, a company that has grown through acquisition in the, in the, the alcohol beverage uh, industry. Um, uh, Maxim Crane Works um, is a company that supplies cranes for construction projects uh, um, and um, it's also established itself as a leader in that, that business. Um, ABC Supply uh, is a company that supplies construction and building materials. Um, um, and they've been acquiring uh, really throughout their history, uh, and they continue to do so. Um, uh, an interesting side note about ABC Supply is this is a company owned by the Hendricks family uh, in Wisconsin. At the time, uh, years ago, they, they had a, a full hire trucking company on the side. That's right, you mentioned they, they, they did indeed. And uh, weren't having much success with it, but uh, they decided to spin it off to a group of executives who uh, have uh, taken it uh, and made it into a, a dedicated fleet uh, where they actually take over uh, operations of private fleets for other companies, right? So it's 100% dedicated today. Um, it's called Blackhawk Transport. Um, um, and we, we could talk a little bit more about dedicated, if you like, um, because um, uh, it, it's an important uh, aspect of, of most private fleet operations. In other words, uh, they have their own fleet of trucks, but they also procure capacity from the for hire market, and they uh, uh, operate uh, dedicated trucks. Um, as well. As, as well. So it's really a blending of all three of these uh, forms of capacity. Uh, that uh, um, we see uh, in private fleets today. So we're seeing a great deal of growth in terms of just the overall size of the fleets, mm -hmm. and we're also seeing a great deal of number of acquisitions where one company acquires another to double their size or increase their size 20 or 30 percent. And the other thing is, and we're going to talk a great deal about this, we're also starting to see companies that are in this particular sector diversifying their particular business lines. Um, correct. Um, we're in a market right now that's very tight. And, Absolutely. Uh, and uh, so I think there's a, a recognition on the part of many private fleets that they have what the market needs, which is number one, capacity in some cases. And in other cases, they have expertise that, the, the, uh, that other people need and can use. So uh, we're seeing uh, some some examples of, of private fleets that are um, expanding into um, uh, other markets, um, not serving just a single customer anymore, but looking for um, uh, arrangements and where they can uh, work with many different customers and um, uh, and combine those operations in a way that's uh, not only profitable but uh, something that reduces costs for their uh, for their owner. And also, right. in some cases, we've, as we've discussed, keeping their equipment operating for longer periods of time during the day and not just using their own drivers, but using them during off-peak hours and the like to, again, get more access and get more, get more use out of their equipment. Yeah, um, that's right. Um, uh, uh, equipment that is idle is, is wasted. Uh, you could say the same thing about about drivers too, but um, uh, so in again in a tight capacity market, people are looking for any uh, and all opportunities to make better use of the capacity that's already out there. So uh, that's what we're seeing. Um, 
Um, a couple um, interesting facts that that I came across recently that illustrate this too. Uh, um, the National Private Truck Council is an organization that represents mm -hmm. private fleets, and they do a benchmarking study of their members, uh, and they have found uh, they track empty miles. Um, that these fleets uh, have in their business, and they also track the number of fleets that uh, have for hire authority, mm -hmm. where you're actually going out into the market and serving other customers, right? Um, both of those um, metrics are going up at the moment, and, uh, and, and I think this is a reflection of the, uh, the market conditions we're in. Uh, people are looking for capacity, and private fleets have it. Uh, and, and they're uh, taking advantage of the situation, so. And so many of these are operators that would, maybe would be, in some cases, would be operating during traditional business hours, but are now adding maybe hours of operation or, or leasing some of their equipment at, out at different times of the day when it might be sitting, as you said, empty trucks, empty trailers aren't making any money, aren't generating revenue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, throughout trucking, we see uh, uh, an emphasis on um, visibility, you know, knowing where your trucks and drivers are at all times, knowing what, what where the freight is and where it needs to go. Mm -hmm. um, and there's uh, there's the means now through technology to uh, understand more about these this data and to act on on, on that information. So. Um, um, we have an interview. Um, that we, I think we'll, come, we'll play right now from Chris Saltemeyer, who is a guy who um, headed the, the private fleet at Walmart and was head of logistics for the company. Um, uh, so he has a good perspective on, on just what's possible uh, in terms of managing a supply chain and uh, what it takes to, uh, to be successful. So why don't we go to that Miami, right now? In the story that we have in the paper this week, we talk a lot about shipment visibility being the key to helping uh, make supply chains more efficient. Um, could you give us specifically some, some things that you think shippers and carriers can do to make this a reality? Yeah, Dan, I think um, when I think about the importance of shipping visibility so that folks can really take control of their supply chain, and when I talk about take control, I'm talking about taking control, therefore, to create better efficiencies within the supply chain right. and the opportunity to potentially reduce inventory and things like that. Right. So when I think about that, probably the most important thing I can think of is the importance of good, clean data, good, clean information, and the ability to communicate that information and how important that is, therefore, then to make decisions. There's lots of data out there, but collecting all of that information, encapsulating that so that decisions can be made from that information are critical. So if I can, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. So a lot of companies right now are putting different type of sensors on products so that they can communicate the status of the product, the temperature of the product, things like that. But we don't want a world where every one of those products is communicating. What we need, especially for something that might be en route on a truck, we need the ability to collect all of that data and transmit that data 
and I go back to my world in the Walmart supply chain, I want that truck to be the platform of communicating the information of all of the product that that truck might be hauling. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I sought when I was part of Walmart, and that's what I really look for is what are those platforms out there that can then communicate and pull all of that information together. And, and that's where I'm a believer in a company like Platform Science that's doing that type of work. Mm -hmm. All right. And since we're in a capacity constrained environment today, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little more about what companies can do to ensure that their goods get shipped. Um, are we going to see uh, companies expand their private fleets, for example? Is that one option? Um, or are, they, are there things that they can do to become um, more attractive to carriers, becoming a quote-unquote shipper of choice? Yeah, Dan, I, I really see it as all, a company like Walmart or other companies need to do all of those things. Mm. So, for example, you need to be a shipper of choice. Whether you have a private fleet or not, you've got to create an environment where the carrier gets paid, the carrier gets paid timely, your facilities are, are facilities that are efficient from an in and out standpoint with docks and everything else. I mean, people can argue right now, I'm not sure if we have a carrier constrained market or a, a constrained market from the standpoint of carrier supply, or if we just have an incredibly inefficient market that we've got to figure out how to cause it to be more efficient. I saw some information the other day that the average driver drives less than seven and a half hours a day. So if you've got 11 hours a driver can drive, but they're only driving seven and a half, that just speaks to the inefficiencies that are in the market today between carriers and shippers. So if we can unlock a lot of that inefficiency drive efficiency through the equation, there's a lot of capacity out there that's untouched. So yes, we need to be a shipper of choice, and shippers need to be doing the things that cause that. At the same time, we've got to work collaboratively with carriers so that we can unlock a lot of that capacity that's out in the market today. We're back. You can see the, uh, the entire interview with Chris online after this uh, program airs. Um, one of the things you'll hear from, from Chris that I think is interesting is his insight into the impact that e-commerce is going to have on retail distribution. So thank you, Chris, for that. And as a reminder, you're watching Live on Web's look at orchestrating the supply chain. As we continue, we always invite you to participate in the show. You can email your questions or comments to share at ttnews.com. We'll do our best to address them during the program. Dan? All right, thank you. Uh, we're pleased to welcome uh, Bron Drogan to the set. He is uh, president of uh, Red Classic Transportation. Red Classic Services. Red Classic <laughs> Services, uh, uh, which is a very interesting company because it has its roots in private uh, carriage. Uh, it's owned by uh, a Coke distributor in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yes, sir. Am I right? And uh, but it has grown uh, on its own and is now a, a full-fledged for-hire carrier. Uh, Ron, uh, welcome, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Um, I want to ask you first. Uh, 
to pick up on something we heard Chris talk about a little bit, and that is uh, what uh, can be done to become a shipper of choice. We're in a very tight capacity market, and we know that carriers are much more selective about who they're serving. So um, you've, you've had a, a hand in both uh, the shipper side and, and the carrier side. What can be done to, to improve that um, connection? Well, Dan, first let me say thank you for the invitation to be here today. I'm excited to have the opportunity to have a chat with you and Dan. Um, this is a great opportunity. I'm honored and humbled. Uh, you know, it's interesting, in 2006, I, and when I was working with Maerskline, uh, managing their transportation company, I had a pretty large shipper uh, step into my office and he came and said, how do I make my business more attractive for your drivers? And he picked up on a while back that uh, he saw this coming. And he knew that driver attraction was dependent on the quality of life they had and the interface experience with the shipping, with the shipper. Um, the, f the most significant investment you have is the individual truck driver themselves, and then you have the capital investment in the equipment. So the best utilization of that equipment is to turn it. So dock times, how quick you can get in and off a shipper's dock. And then there's the equipment utilization of the trailer. How quick you can get a trailer unloaded, uh, loaded, and, and keep that equipment moving. A tractor was built to drive. Uh, a trailer was built to have cargo in it and move down the street, and a driver was trained to drive the truck. They weren't really dr trained to sit at a, a shipper's dock. Uh, and then the other side of it is, which I, I find a lot of shippers investing in right now, is the convenience of what they have for the drivers when they are at the dock. Mm -hmm. Common decency is the first. I mean, these drivers work incredibly hard every day, and their interactions with the dock workers, with the people who, who interact from a shipper's perspective at our customer's dock is real important. Um, you, you want to, like any other employee in the organization, you want to feel valued. So that interaction in there as far as uh, um, common decency is really, really important, which is great for our partners, our customer partners. Uh, they invest, in, their cultures move in that direction where our drivers are treated really, really well. Plus restroom, convenience areas, a uh, place for them to rest. Uh, fatigue's a big issue. In the aviation industry, yeah. small general aviation airports or airports that are non-handling commercial sites have places for pilots who fly charters to rest, yeah. a, a nap room, vending machines, uh, maybe there's a, a restaurant close by. Are you seeing an improvement in the facilities in the trucking industry, not so much at the truck stops, but at the warehouses, at the loading docks? Are you seeing that at those increases? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, shippers are, are pretty obviously more experienced right now in the capacity constraints. And they're trying to make it more attractive for, for the drivers and their driver experience. Uh, they also know that the more attractive they can make their facilities, um, the higher probability we have to actually recruit drivers to that business um, to have that experience. Sometimes drivers follow shippers. So if they find that we're doing business with a specific shipper who they've had quality of life experiences in a positive manner, They'll come work for us knowing that we partner. Or, or a negative experience. Or a negative experience where they don't want to uh, participate in that. But we do see uh, snack shops, uh, lounge areas, uh, something. It's like when you drive long periods of time in your car, you want to get out of it and walk around and have an area by which you have uh, a place to stop and just rest for a moment. And that's important for the driver because the longer he sits in his tractor, uh, the more fatigued he gets. And that becomes a safety issue as well. So we, we focus a lot. Uh, my parent company as well, Coca-Cola Consolidated Bottling Company, uh, in the quality of life of all employees. Uh, it's, so turning the equipment, getting the best return on the capital investment, and the quality interaction with the, the driver themselves. 
We, we can only hope that this will last, <laughs> <laughs> these improvements, because uh, uh, the market will fluctuate, as you know, and uh, these tight market conditions won't last forever. So, um, but obviously that's something that, yeah. that we'll, we'll, we need to keep uh, focus on, obviously. Yeah, I, the, the market is good right now. Yeah. Uh, it's tight, it's, it's complex. Uh, you've had somewhat of a, 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 it was a long time coming, but, but it's a matter of math. You have more drivers who are retiring now than actually entering into the business. So we probably have a sustained period of time where the capacity is going to be constrained for some years now. Um, and we need to adjust the industry to, to match that. We need to make it more. You, you, do, you do not want to be in an industry where uh, you can't find the resources to manage it. And drivers are a significant resource to manage that, that network. So you have to make it attractive as an industry. With studies such as the one by ATA showing a driver shortage mm -hmm. of 50,000, 60,000 drivers and the average age of drivers over the age of 50, is the industry, where can the industry then do better in terms of manage that resource? You can manage how much your fleet is on the road in terms of how you, you know, the equipment, because it's, a, it's a, uh, an inanimate object, mm -hmm. but human beings are. So how do you do a better job of managing that? Uh, you have to make it more attractive for the individual driver. You have to make it exciting. There was a time when I had grown up in the industry where an individual driver just loved throwing their bag in the truck and driving across the country and seeing that. People are more focused on quality of life now in their homes, seeing their families, uh, spending time with their children. So creating networks by which drivers have the opportunity to be home. At some point, if you're over the road driver, not spending four or five weeks out on the road, where maybe you could be home on the first week weekend or second week weekend. And then what we do in our day cab operation, we created a hub system to extend that tractor so it could go longer distances by dropping in a hub, returning, and having that driver spend time with his family at night and having time spent with their, with their, uh, with their children. So I think it's really from a technology perspective, and we'll talk a little bit about that from safety, attracting the younger group to understand that this is a, an attractive business. And I actually think the ATA does a very good job with this, getting more awareness of, of an exciting opportunity, um, plus compensation adjustments will attract people to the industry as well. Ron, could you uh, spend a few minutes telling us a little of the history of, of your company, Red Classic? Uh, sure. How, it, how did it begin, and, and how did it take us through this transition from private to for hire? Sure. And what it has produced uh, for you. So like you said, we started as a private fleet uh, for Coca-Cola Consolidated Bottling, uh, which is a very entrepreneurial company. It's uh, Right now, I believe it's the largest uh, bottler in, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, they have other type of business uh, 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 entities as well, um, but really it was about tractor utilization and capital investment. So the first thing we started to do was dual utilize our tractors, run them during the day for customer deliveries, and then at night would finish goods from the plant to the distribution centers. Then you have to worry about efficiency, how do you get that tractor back without running empty miles? So what they did was they created a for hire carrier to connect with other business partners to reduce the empty miles and build efficiencies. Um, and then realized at that point there's a business opportunity here that not only that we could lower the cost for the supply chain of Coca-Cola Consolidated, but also offer that to other um, partners in the Coca-Cola network, other suppliers, as well as other entities that are similar shippers to, shippers to Consolidated. Um, because of the volatility in beverage, no surprise, beverages consumed uh, the majority over the summer periods or, or warm periods of time. Um, it creates volatility and spikes in business we had to create a brokerage entity as well. Mm -hmm. So creating that brokerage entity and establishing relationships with other third-party carriers, we saw another business opportunity to bring that expertise to other shippers and say, we can connect your cargo to, um, 
to other good uh, carrier partners and uh, provide that service for them as well. So we started to create these different businesses as well as our maintenance company. So when you look at Red Classic, it's Red Classic uh, Transportation Services, which is a brokerage company. You have Red Classic Transit, which is our regional asset carrier, as well as um, our maintenance company. And then you have Red Classic Contractors, which is our over-the-road trucking division. And we just created a new, formed a new entity called uh, Red Classic Ma uh, Transportation Management Services, which is a one-to-one -one relationship with large shippers. And what we did was, understanding the complexity of the, the Coke system network, we try to take all those services to market and connect multiple shippers in that and do it from a value proposition perspective. Uh, Coke is, uh, Coca-Cola is an incredible brand that represents excellence. We take that excellence and service, customer service focus, and connect it to you, not in the perspective of how much can I make on you, but how much can I take out of the system in order to create efficiencies for our business partners. So we come at it from a, a shipper type mentality of what can we do with you by looking at this complex dynamic market with the multiple lines of business services that we have to connect those dots. It was interesting, we were talking with one of our network designers yesterday, a few of our, our leadership team, and it was, it was great to watch his passion and excitement. They look at it as one big puzzle, complex critical thinking puzzle of how do I plug in different aspects of that puzzle to get the best optimization for you as the shipper and what value am I providing to you as the shipper and that's how we go to market. So it really started as an idea of how to reduce our own expenses but then sh how to share that with other Coke entities as well as bringing other uh, consumer product goods manufacturers to the, to the table. Mm -hmm. So that's been interesting. Yeah. We have a question from a reader that uh, maybe you could elaborate on sure. a little bit more if you don't mind. It's from uh, Brian Michael uh, who's a manager at CH Robinson. And uh, he asks, do you expect private fleets to expand their use of brokerage services to maximize utilization and revenue? Um, what do you think? I mean, the, uh, the, the data from NPTC shows us that uh, almost 80% of private fleets have for hire authority. But do you see them doing more in the brokerage area going forward? I believe in this capacity constrained market, you have to utilize all resources available to you. So I do th think there will be and continue to be an expansion into the um, uh, brokerage market. I know we did that. Mm -hmm. And we're also basing on the need inside the market today, based on some of the capacity constraints, that's where we bring our sophistication and our expertise to that. So we're expanding that brokerage entity and uh, we have a great group of people uh, who work in our brokerage group that uh, come from other businesses as well that have uh, had the ability to connect with other shippers who have private fleets and augment and, and uh, uh, supplement their private fleets with other capacity. Our capacity is a little bit challenging to find. And, and the good news is the economy's good. People are shipping more products. And we always used to say you, you can't build a church for Easter Sunday. You can only have so much capacity available to you. So when you have that growth spurt, you have to supplement it with some other, we do at least, with some other capacity. So, Not only right. is the economy going really well, as, yeah. as, as we've seen, I mean, strong GDP, low unemployment, but it's also going through a fundamental change, too, in terms of the way we do business with on-demand shipping, uh, final mile, all of these things that raise new challenges for people who are in the industry that you're in. I mean, in terms of, you know, how do you manage this? not only strong economy with a driver shortage and everything else, but how do you manage this during an economy that's, that's going through some real change and disruption? Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's this whole world we live in today is expecting information immediately. 
um, you could order something online and have it delivered to you today. So that creates the narrative and the expectation of the consumer of how we integrate. So technology, technology, expertise, people, um, just bringing the connection points of that sophisticated approach uh, to better provide information to our, our, our customers. Uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. It's, it's growing rapidly. Um, but fortunately at Red Classic, we've, we've had the ability to attract a, a great talent to our company. And um, um, we've learned really quick is you hire good people, get out of their way and let them do their job. And they connect with the customers and they provide that. They're, they're stepping in and filling the void. Uh, and, and a lot of people today, they're just technology driven. That's where our, our life is today. You bring people out of college, uh, their, their technical perspective, we actually had a, uh, I, they call him a futurist, but he actually walked us through how generations look today at technology, which is a little bit different than how I look at it, my experience mm -hmm. from my generation, which I think, w for the most part, I grew up in a technology-enhanced uh, environment until my daughter asked me what a CD was. Then I knew I was really a little bit dated. Yeah. So, I go back to 8-track. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, so things have changed a little bit. So I think you have to have a great mixture of experienced transportation people uh, as well as the uh, youthful perspective on technology and connect that and have that forward-thinking understanding of what technology is available in the industry. And I think you're going to have a guest on to talk a little about that today as what's available to the market today to, to bring sophistication to, to the system. Uh, Ron, I want to ask you a, a question about safety too. Sure. Because when we surveyed uh, the private fleets for this story and we asked them what the most important technology is for them going forward, um, the overwhelming majority of responses we got all had to do with safety. Uh, uh, so, uh, and I know at your company, uh, you devote a lot of resources to uh, yeah. safety. So talk to us a little bit about uh, what that means in terms of what you're acquiring and how you're managing your drivers and so forth. Sure, well, I'll start off with this, that and safety is a value for us. I know a lot of people talk about that, but we, we execute it every day with the great men and women who operate in, in the Red Classic organization. So it start with, starts with who you hire into the company, what your value is, and co-consolidated, our parent company has true value and commitment to our, our people. Uh, our first priority when we walk through the door is to make sure our employees get home safe and that we protect the communities they live in. So, so, th so that's number one. It's the value proposition and the people you employ. Uh, and then the next thing is hire a great safety director, and ours is Jim Gorley. He is, from, from my experience, the best in the industry. Uh, and his whole team has done a great job helping guide us through uh, the growth that we've experienced uh, and then the connection to operations. Uh, but the greatest safety feature inside a tractor is your driver. Mm -hmm. uh, and what technology can you supplement that, tractor, that driver with uh, in order to enable him to continue with that safety focus? So you start with culture and value, and then you try to attract people into your organization. And in a capacity-constrained environment, that becomes a little bit challenging at times. Um, so but, but we're real excited about what we're doing at Red Classic. Uh, we focus on fatigue. So how do we cre cre uh, create an environment in the tractor? Like, this is your work environment right here. A tractor is the work environment for a driver. What can we enhance that tractor with? in order to reduce the fatigue of a driver because we want that person to get home. And I just want to back up a second. You also have to personalize safety. And if you don't mind, I'll take a moment to talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, I have two daughters I mentioned, Deanna and Alyssa. Uh, they, Alyssa started school today, so, and she's been driving for two years. She's on the road in Charlotte, North Carolina, probably as we speak. And then my second daughter is on her way back to Liberty University, Deanna. Uh, she's starting her senior year, and she's driving up 85 and across 29. 
and I can tell you she will cohabitate with a number of the <laughs> trucks that we have on the road today. Right. So I have a, my responsibility, my primary responsibility is to create a, a protective environment for, environment for them. I bring that into the, into the work environment. If you take it personal like that, it becomes much more important. And we try to align ourselves with employees that personalize it as well. We want them to get home to their families just as much as I want my daughters to be protected on the road. So it starts again with the driver. And again, our, our safety director is a great uh, ambassador for that. So then we, we look at stuff like um, the seat that he sits in. We want the best ergonomic seat for that person to be comfortable in that he's not being stressed in, that, in the condition of that tractor. And then what's the sound he's hearing? So we make sure that we have an upgraded insulation in the tractor to make sure that he, he's not being disturbed, distracted, or have that constant pressure on himself. Uh, and then air ride, suspension, up and down, up and down, up and down. And then LED lights, uh, anti-lock braking. So there's a whole host of features that go into the tractor before you even get to the technology side of it from an electronics perspective. I said electronics, see, I'm dating myself. Uh, and then we've uh, partnered with a group, uh, uh, the majority of our supplier of tractors is Mack Truck, which is a, is a great uh, partnership for us. Uh, but then there's a, a device or a system that we've included in our tractors called the Bendix Wingman, Wingman Fusion Collision Mitigation System. Mm -hmm. Say that 10 times fast. Um, and what it is, it's an integrated solution that has a military-grade radar system, has a, ca a camera, a uh, very sophisticated camera system, and has active braking. Uh, it can inter interrupt the braking system and, and guide the tractor in the direction it needs to go. And really what it does is, and I love the name of it, wingman. The pilot is the, tra is the driver. The wingman is the supplement to provide him with the information so he can execute what he needs to execute in order to make sure that he's maintaining a safe uh, environment. And what that does is the camera, the camera actually can read street signs, which is amazing to me. I uh, could read the speed of, of the sign. It also can interpret the movement of 30 different vehicles on the road. Within 360? Within, exactly. So it's constantly giving information back to the driver so he can make decisions. Because most incidents happen with a rapid circumstance, probably not uh, in the control of the driver. So he has to respond to that. And what we've learned is in this system, we can get up to at least, at minimum, a half second more reaction time. So someone says, a half second, what is that? Two car lengths on and a if, highway. And if you're driving something that's 70,000 or 80,000 pounds, a half second can be the difference between slamming on the brakes and stopping and yeah. avoiding an accident or ending up in the, in the, back, of, the back of someone's vehicle or in the side of someone's vehicle. Yeah, it, it actually, we, we, it's exactly right, and we call it the difference between a near miss and a tragic incident. Mm, so um, there's a lot that goes on with that. And uh, we're right now we have those coming in with what we call the Anthem tractor, which is... Uh, manufactured by, uh, by Mac, and there's a pinnacle track that we had previously that didn't have those devices built into them, and we're having those retrofitted now. So it's, it's, it ne nothing ever takes uh, place of the driver. You have to start with the best safety-focused driver and then build safety technology enhancements to give them the tools to react. Um, this device actually uh, prevents and reduces the number of jackknife or, or turnovers, uh, rollovers. And what it does is it measures how the driver is um, um, adjusting to the circumstances and then gives him feedback or helps him adjust to it. And to the best of, we have statistics right now, 
for the tractors that we have in place that have these devices, we've yet to have a jackknife or a turnover tractor. Plus, Bendix is a great business partner. We're, they've asked us to be on their user advisory committee. Yeah. So as we're using this device today, we're also working with them on future uh, devices. Safety is not a... Uh, uh, it's, it's not an individual or, or a proprietary. That's something you share with everyone because you want everyone to be safe on the road. Yeah. And especially with the invention of cell phones, that's created a little bit more of a distraction. You want to invest the best you can to make sure that you're, you're protecting uh, your greatest resource, which is your employees. And we have great resources and employees at Red Classic. And, and uh, it's, it's a, 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 a well worth the investment of time and money. Ron, thank you very much. Thank it's been you. great hearing you and great chatting with you about this and all the great things that are taking place down in Charlotte. We appreciate your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank, thank you very you. much. Again, now back to the issue that we had talked about also too, is a diversity about how private companies are now in the business of diversifying and moving their businesses along. We talked earlier with Brad Jenkins at Private Flying J. One of those private companies that has had a tremendous amount of success is Knoxville, Tennessee-based Pilot Flying J. It's almost 60 years old now, and it is known across the United States and Canada for its chain of truck stops. Pilot Flying J is the largest distributor of over-the-road diesel fuel in the United States. It's also the biggest travel chain center in the U.S. with 550 locations. And get this, it is the largest franchisee in the United States, excuse me, in the world for the Subway restaurant chain with over 200 locations. On August the 8th, it was announced that we reported in Transport Topics that Pilot Flying J is expanding its business portfolio with a move into the water, sand, and crude oil hauling business. The company has started a joint venture creating a new company called PWT that will focus on saltwater transportation and disposal services to the oil and gas sector. Here to talk about all of this is Brad Jenkins. He's Pilot Flying J's Senior Vice President of Supply and Distribution. He joins us via Skype from Knoxville. Hey, Brad, welcome to Live on Web. Thanks for spending a couple minutes to chat with us. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell us, why uh, with a company that's been very successful, a privately held company, very successful, why has the company decided to, to diversify into this particular area? What's the strategy behind it? Well, what Pilot Flying J is trying to do through PWT transaction and the Bridger transaction are to leverage core competencies that exist within Pilot Flying J. And the, the requirements to, to haul diesel fuel, gasoline, biodiesel fuel, ethanol, et cetera, are very similar to those required for hauling crude and water. So we're very familiar with handling uh, hazardous materials uh, we have the infrastructure in place for hiring drivers, safety, uh, dispatch systems, and we're really trying to leverage our capabilities to be able to serve the oil and gas sector. But this is an area that, uh, as we were talking about before when we did the interview for Transport Topics, your company moves millions of gallons of diesel fuel every year for the trucking industry, but this is a little bit of a different niche. This is going to be getting out into the oil and the natural gas fields across uh, the United States. A little bit different type of a market, isn't it? It is, and we have some experience in uh, 2010 when we merged with uh, Flying J. Part of that transaction, we inherited a crude hauling business that we have uh, basically grown to about 250 trucks. 
So over the last eight years, we've been building our capabilities in that space, building up the number of, of barrels that we haul every day, and uh, basically trying to leverage that knowledge and the capability and the infrastructure that we have to serve the oil and gas industry across the United States. Is this a case where for privately held companies such as yourself, we've seen a lot of this lately where the economy is roaring, doing very well, they have a lot of additional uh, assets in terms of cash, and they decide that now's a good time to branch out to bring in another revenue source. Is that the idea behind this, that now is the right time with a strong economy? Well, I think it's twofold. I think the economy is strong, and we have a lot of confidence you know, in the economy right now. Uh, but also, the, our view on the oil and gas sector and the, the prices of crude going forward uh, we feel will be, you know, fairly strong and stable, and this is a good time uh, to invest in that space. And we've just come out of a pretty severe downturn, so there are a lot of assets out there that have, uh, you know, endured those hard times, and uh, it's a good time to buy. And I understand also this is an area, too, in terms of jobs, that, again, this is going to be something that uh, will be employing a lot of people, both uh, truck drivers and also support personnel. Tell me about that. Well, you know, we, we were fortunate enough to pick up some very great team members from Bridger and from the PWT acquisition, but both of those, um, both of the entities, the crude hauling business within Pilot Flying J and the water disposal and transportation business uh, are high growth for us. So yes, we will be adding uh, a significant number of jobs, not only professional driving jobs, but also support staff uh, in Knoxville, Houston, and Dallas, Texas. And we are seeing right now in this country, this is a very good time in terms of oil exploration. The Department of Energy is forecasting that will be over 11 million barrels of oil produced every day in the United States. So obviously the, uh, the supply, the amount of fuel that we need uh, domestically is not going down, it's going up. And I guess the, your idea is that now is as good a time as any to get into this. It is, and if you look at, you know, we're at over 10 million barrels a day right now, going to 11 million barrels a day. When you start to look at the Permian Basin, for example, the takeaway capacity, the pipeline takeaway capacity that bring food out of the Permian Basin and into the refining centers are at capacity. So there's a heavy demand for trucking transportation services and solutions in the Permian Basin to help fill the infrastructure gap that will take time to build out. Are there any particular parts of the country where oil exploration will be going on and is going on now that you'll be focusing on? You mentioned the Permian Basin, but what about some other areas? I know there's been a lot of, there's a lot of activity in uh, Pennsylvania with uh, the fracking move that's there. Other parts of the country, uh, North Dakota, any parts of the country you will or will not be in right off the bat? The only one that we're currently not in right now is in North Dakota. And we've been in North Dakota before the downturn, um, downsize there. We have a truck stop presence, obviously, in North Dakota. So we will go there if, uh, you know, if that looks like a great opportunity. We, we tend to try and follow our customers. Most of the new business that we bring on are existing customers asking for service in other basins or other areas of the United States. So if there's a need for it, then uh, we certainly would entertain getting into North Dakota. You've carved out quite a market share within the 
the truck stop and in the restaurant area, which we talked about in the introduction. How competitive is this particular sector with the hauling of these uh, products, the, the sand, the water, the other products? How competitive is this? And what type of a landscape are you getting into from a business standpoint? Well, the, the truck stop industry is a very mature market and very competitive. So it's, uh, you know, we compete every day for to win the business of the over-the-road trucking customer. And um, we take that as our core business and we take that very seriously and we want to deliver, you know, our guests the highest level of service that we can. Uh, but it is a mature business and trucks are getting more efficient. Um, the AM, we call the Amazon effect. Logistics uh, companies are getting more efficient, so you kind of have a two-fold uh, headwind, I guess, against the truck the truck stop industry. In that, you know, you've got you know flat to declining volumes because of fuel efficiency, and then you also have the efficiency gained through logistics solutions. And uh, you know, it's it's very competitive, and uh, you know, we are looking for ways to diversify, leverage core competencies, and diversify our business and get some exposure to other markets, other sectors. As a businessman and as uh, someone who's in a leadership role in the company, how will you after, let's say, 18 months or two years, what will be your measurement stick that you use to say, okay, this has been successful. We're, we're, we're where we need to be on this as a, as a private company trying to find a, another revenue source, another business line. How would you measure success? Well, the most important thing that we face or any transportation company faces is safety. So how has our safety record been affected? Were we able to safely deliver um, the services that our customers require in the, in, the crude, in the crude and natural gas field? So that would be the first one. Were we able to, to translate our great safety record from the clean product side into the crude side? Uh, secondly, were we able to meet the needs of our customers? Without our customers, you know, we will cease to exist. They, there are plenty of people that will come in and uh, be able to ride services like this. We need to make sure we deliver excellent customer service. And thirdly, you know, how profitable and efficiently we can run the business. Hello, welcome back. Uh, we're going to talk about a, a problem. Uh, right now, uh, of, uh, that that is something that uh, uh, all shippers and carriers are dealing with, and that's detention—the time that it takes uh, trucks to get loaded and unloaded. And I'm very pleased uh, to welcome to the uh, program uh, Jason Foshog, who is a uh, has created a company um, called uh, Velocity Raider that works with carriers and shippers to uh, uh, gather data on uh, time that uh, trailers spend, drivers spend waiting for loads, and uh, coming up with solutions to this problem. So um, Jason, welcome. Thank um, you. Thanks, Dan and Dan, for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, maybe the, before we begin in earnest, uh, uh, we'd like to share a question from a reader on this point. It comes from uh, Julie Wanstadt. Uh, who is a director at Keller Logistics Group. And she says, I'm all about cracking down on excessive detention, big time. What, as an industry, <laughs> are our options? Jason, I'm hoping that you can shed some light on this. 
But first, tell us how big of a problem this is, and uh, um, and then we can talk about what we're going what we can do. Sure, Julie. Thanks for the question. And there's a lot of people in the industry that want to fix this problem, including me. I've got 20 years on the shipping side at uh, Fortune 500 companies and private equities, and, and the problem is a big one, and it hasn't changed in sadly a number of decades. Um, but it's more and more important as driver time is is being diminished and restricted. So. I think the problem is massive. So we have a $700 billion transportation industry. And it's about a 5% problem. So $35 billion of waste is generated by detention. That's passed on to consumers. So how you get there, it's really two parts. And this is just direct cost and indirect costs that are, are passed directly on to you, um, from carriers to shippers. So you've got basically, if you assume one in five warehouses, uh, you've got an inefficient facility where a driver is waiting for an hour. Um, so 20% of the time, you've got a detention event. Um, most shippers, 1% to 3% of their spend is in detention. So that one hour, at an average of $75 an hour, translates to about 2% of spend, uh, or $14 billion. On top of that, because detention is such a painful process, and we all know that, carriers don't want to charge it. It's tough to collect the information, all the documents, um, invoice, and then the approval process for shippers is really difficult and then actual payment, it could take months to get money. Carriers know the inefficient facilities. They charge a rate premium of, it used to be 10 to 25% just to go to that facility. Now with the tight capacity we're seeing, it's upwards of 50 to 200% and some of those loads don't move for a number of days. So it's a $35 billion problem. That doesn't even t count the, the carrier turnover. Every carrier would tell you it's six or $7,000 to replace one driver and driver turnover is 75% plus at all these carriers. So that's a component I haven't calculated, but it's a massive cost. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, I, I'm surprised um, at the, the cost. Mm. Uh, I don't doubt that, that this is right. And it's such a big problem. Tell us why it hasn't been addressed effectively before now. Yeah, well. Uh, what, what's the hang up here? It's, it's a great question. And so being a part of a shipper, uh, you know, is guilty of it for many years and, and, and I fixed it and which is why I've created this business. So, you know, the, the challenge is it's, it's kind of twofold. So a lot of it gets down to org structure at shippers, to be honest. You typically have a transportation team, procurement and ops team that are working with carriers, negotiating rates, you know, going through an annual bid process, they get rates in place and then they're done. And, and it gets passed off to a warehouse team that usually falls into a different leader. It could fall under manufacturing or a different supply chain leader. And those leaders within that same company, big or small, have got different conflicting priorities. And so it doesn't really get addressed. Um, the other challenge is the carrier gives feedback, you know, through a, a sales call, an email, a, you know, a conference call, gives feedback, it's incomplete, it's we're frustrated with your Chattanooga facility and can you please fix it? Nothing gets done. A few months go by and that carrier stops taking the load. Well, one of the challenges that we have in the industry is there's three million drivers and about one million trucking companies. So it's easier for that shipper just to call the next carrier on the list and we go through the same cycle. And after a few months go by, the new carrier has struggles and they get the same feedback and it just goes on and on and on and on. Jason, so in this era though of what we've talked about is very tight capacity, can we really afford as an industry to give away this much in terms of dollar figure, capacity, driver time, equipment sitting idle, can we really afford to keep doing this 
in continuing to keep doing things the way they've been done without any improvements? No, not at all, not at all. And so when I started this business over a year ago, um, I, I thought my solution was going to be great to help uh, both carriers and shippers, and it is. One of the challenges that's happening, though, is capacity is so tight, companies are spending so much time and resources that they haven't spent before just to try and get a truck to come pick something up at any cost. And so when things start to normalize, there will be a tension focused back on dock time. So Ron Drogan, who's a, a personal friend and a great leader at Red Classic, the first thing he mentioned was dock times are the most important thing to attract capacity. So if you're a shipper, I know a lot of shippers that have uh, dock times in, in under an hour, they're not having problems getting capacity. And so shippers need to invest in people and time to fix those issues, and they will get the capacity before other shippers that don't spend the time in it. So how is Velocity Raider doing this? How, yeah. how, how are you doing this? It's, great. it's a great question. Yes. Okay, so it's a great question. So we're, okay. we're, one of the challenges is we've got so much data, and why I started this company is the data is all there. It's owned by the carriers. They measure dwell time at every single facility that they stop at every single day. Um, this data is passed on the shippers through EDI 214 data. A lot of shippers, the vast majority, just use that data for on-time delivery performance to their customers. So the data is there. It's a lot. It's cumbersome. I'm taking that data and working both with trucking companies where they can use that data to create reports in 30 seconds and send the shippers. That gives them all the information the shipper needs which customers are creating the most wait times, which warehouses by customer are creating the most wear time, wait times. Also, is it a certain time of day? Is it a certain day of the week? Is there a seasonality issue? So if you're a shipper, now you can get complete information in seconds, and you know exactly where the problems are uh, and how to fix it. Shippers know how to fix the problem, and they really just need to know where to start. And so I've created this company to really help the collaboration process between carriers and shippers um, to solve this problem. It's Go ahead. Yes, and I want you to, to tell us specifically what you've done in your experience working with uh, shippers to fix the problem. Because yeah. you, you, as you say, it can be fixed. Uh, and so let's address you know Julie's question directly. What yeah. what can be done? It's it's great. And so, you know, I've worked for uh, companies like Coca Cola and Mars and CSM Bakery Solutions. And yeah. one of the things that we pride ourselves on was building partnerships with carriers. A lot of shippers will do an annual bid, and there's a tremendous cost to switching your carriers out every single year. And so what we focus on was how do we build a long-term relationship with a carrier where that carrier would have that lane for years to come, which frees up a lot of time for me and my team to focus on fixing other problems like customer service problems, detention problems, lead time issues. So we've spent a lot of time focusing on those problems where carriers, they get used to the origin, they get used to the customer, and they give you feedback of, where there's problems and where we should focus. And so that's we've had a lot of success. Um, we've actually, in the warehouse, you know, there's things specifically we've done. It's really about knowing where the problem is. So now we know we, we brought up Chattanooga. There's a problem at this warehouse. Um, things we've done in the past, warehouse manager, pre-shift meetings about talking about detention the previous day, the previous shift, what's coming up in this shift. We have uh, created bonus programs for everyone in the warehouse on pick accuracy and getting trucks in and out uh, and not paying detention penalties. Um, we've pre-staged loads at night, which has been helpful to get things ready. And I think the most impactful thing that we've done is we've actually put clocks up at every dock door inside the warehouses. You can buy a clock for a big clock for 100 bucks. You put it up, as soon as that truck backs in, and Ron mentioned that, 
the clock starts ticking. And you've got two hours max to get that out, um, hopefully less. But at one hour, the supervisor sees what's going on, and they come in and talk to the forklift driver to figure out, are they going to finish on time? And if not, they get help. We did that in my previous company. We took 90% of detention out in less than 30 days, mm -hmm. just with those basic focus efforts. Mm -hmm. You know, something interesting you mentioned to me in our interview earlier was that you didn't think that appointment times were mm -hmm. something that would be helpful in terms of expediting trucks in and out. Explain yeah. why that's, that's not necessarily the solution here. Yeah, it's, it, appointment times are such a mess in the industry, and, and everyone knows that. They're just getting one and getting the right one. So well, let's say you're a truck driver, and you've got an appointment for 10 o'clock this morning. And, and you make good time. You, you left on time previously. Now you get here at 5 in the morning, and that warehouse is open. You're waiting five hours. You're wasting five hours of your day for that appointment time. So warehouses, to be fair, need to know when you're coming in. So they really need to know, hey, Dan Trucking is coming in today, but more of blocks of time is what works, and a lot of carriers will tell you. you know, Dan's going to be here between 8 and 12. That's the appointment time. And once you get there, it's first come, first serve. Dan's going to be here between 12 and 4, et cetera. So you set up times more in, in blocks of time is, uh, is much more efficient for the carriers um, because what happens if you miss an appointment, many facilities you know, put that carrier in the back of the line, and you know, it may not be their fault. Uh, of why they're late. Um, many times it isn't. So, yeah, we need to get away from appointment times, and we're going to be uh, publishing a white paper with actual stats that say what shippers, not shippers, but warehouses, what works, appointment times, windows, et cetera. And so we have a lot of data on that, and, and we'll publish that mm -hmm. soon. You know, without naming names, um, where is the problem the worst in the industry? I mean, um, can you say uh, that there are certain types of facilities where detention, excessive detention, is, is uh, you know, the biggest problem? Um, are there certain areas of the country that are worse than others? Do we it, know yet? It's interesting. So uh, working for large shippers, you know, I, I knew some of our customers that we struggled with and some of our own facilities we struggled with. And so I had my hunches of which would be the, um, the, the usual suspects, so to speak. But what surprised me is it's all over the place. And so when I started this business, my assumption was one in five facilities, from my own experience, had dwell time or excessive dwell time, say an hour of detention, a three-hour wait time versus two. You know, I'd love to leave the audience with you know, two stats that I've learned in the last year, 55 and 20. So 55% of trucks are, get in and out in under two hours across the U.S. 20% of trucks have more than five hours of wait time. So it, it's at small shippers, it's yes. at small customers, that's at big and small uh, shippers and, cu and uh, customers. So it's a big problem, it's widespread. Mm. It's not necessarily industry or commodity specific, like I thought it would be. Jason, yeah. in the remaining moments we have, where can we find out more information about your company and where can our viewers find out more information about the company? Yeah, absolutely, you can, uh, you can look us up, velocityradar.com, um, or email me directly, jason.foshog at velocityradar.com. Jason, thanks for joining us. It's been Appreciate an interesting it. conversation, and we Thank hope you. that the next time we have you on as a guest that those numbers will be down and they'll be getting better. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. We appreciate, appreciate that. It. And that concludes this edition of Live on Web, presented by Transport Topics. We'd like to thank our senior features writer, Dan Berth, who is the, really the heart and soul of the regular rankings of carriers, and in particular, this edition that focused on private carriers. We were also joined by Chris Sultemeyer, an industry trucking industry consultant and the former executive vice president of logistics at Walmart. 
Ron Drogan, the president of Red Classic Services, joined us here on set, and we appreciate him. And Jason Faustag, the president and CEO of Velocity Raider, also joined us on set as well, and we appreciate him taking time out of his busy day to join us as well. On Skype, Brad Jenkins with Pilot Flying J came here, and we had a chance to talk with him as well. And again, we thank our sponsor, Verizon Connect, for today's Live on Web. I'm Dan Ronan. We will see you again next time, Live on Web, here at TransportTopics.com. Thank you, everyone.